Pint Glass Football Podcast is presented by Better Edge, giving the edge back to the betters with no fee sports betting. At betteredge.com, you, not the books, set the price of betting lines so you can make bank with no VIG or sportsbook fees. Better Edge is available in 45 states for real money sports betting. Create an account and use code PGF for $10 on your first order. Play the game without getting played at betteredge.com. Welcome to the Pint Glass Football Podcast. This is Pint Glass Football. Drink beer, talk football. You know what it's about. If you're new to the show, hit that subscribe button. What's up, PGF Nation? I'm your host, Brad Fowler, and McKenzie Brewing is the official beer of Pint Glass Football. Follow them at McKenzie Brewing. Follow us at pintglassfootball.com. Got another loaded show today, guys. One of the biggest free agent signings this offseason got benched. Is there an NFL quarterback controversy brewing? Is it time to hit the panic button for three NFL teams? Guest Derek Peterson from Saturday Out West talks Pac-12 football and previews the biggest game of the week in college football, plus a lot more to get to. So let's crack a cold one and kick this off. All right, like I just said in the intro, guys, one of the biggest free agent signings this offseason got benched on Monday night. And I think it came to a big surprise to people that might not have been paying attention. Cornerback J.C. Jackson, who came over from New England and signed a five-year, $82.5 million contract with the Chargers, got benched on Monday Night Football versus the Denver Broncos. He only played 26 snaps on Monday. According to PFF, he's giving up a 155.3 passer rating in coverage. That is not getting it done, especially for a guy who came into this season, was seen as an elite cornerback, and like I mentioned a second ago, got paid like an elite quarterback. He has not lived up to that contract at all. Brandon Staley said he'll remain the starter going forward, but this sent a message on Monday Night Football to J.C. Jackson. And this is a guy that I've been really critical of, and Brandon Staley, the head coach of the Chargers. I've ripped him several times on this podcast because I just don't believe in what I've seen from this guy. But I do have to applaud this move because it's not easy benching a high-priced player like this when you bring over a big-time free agent like this. It was a splashy move for the Chargers. They paid a lot of money for this guy, and to sit him down because of his performance is not an easy thing to do, so I give him a lot of credit for being able to do that, but sometimes you have to make that kind of move. Sometimes you have to send a statement to a star player saying, look, you're not getting it done on the field. Like I said, it sounds like he's going to be the starter going forward, but hopefully this is a bit of a wake-up call for him because he simply has to play better. He's not playing like a star cornerback. He's not even playing like a high-level starter. He's playing like a guy that belongs on the bench. So for the Chargers' sake, hopefully this guy can get back in a rhythm and get back to playing like he did when he was in New England. This team is 4-2, and two, but they haven't been a very impressive 4-2. and two. Their young corner on the other side, Asante Samuel Jr., has been playing at a really high level. If they can get Jackson playing at a high level, this defense could take another step. 
Speaking of New England, is there a quarterback controversy brewing for the New England Patriots? Now, look, this might sound clickbaity. It might sound like one of those things that you say just to get people to pay attention. But I'm serious here because it's only been two starts so far, but it's really hard to argue with the success that the Patriots offense has had with rookie Bailey Zappi under center. This kid is playing some lights out football right now. Last week, he went 24 for 34 for 309 yards, two touchdowns, no picks, He's looked really good. He was also good on third down, too. Now, Mac Jones, we know he had a really good rookie season last year. He surprised a lot of people, myself included, with how well he played. But this guy has thrown at least one pick in each game he started this year. The offense hasn't looked very good. And the rookie comes in, Bailey Zappi, like I said, he took over. And at this point, the offense looks like it has clearly taken a step up since Bailey Zappi took over the job. Now, we know pretty much at this point who Mac Jones is. What we don't know is if this is just a hot start for Bailey Zappi or if this kid could be for real. I don't think it's crazy to say that this kid has earned the right to start another game at this point. If I'm the New England Patriots, I think you have to strongly consider giving this kid another chance to start, maybe even two games to start, to really see what you have here. Look, Mac Jones is a good young quarterback. I think we can all admit he's been a very solid young quarterback, but he's not exactly a superstar. It's not like he came in and just started tearing it up and setting rookie records. I think we've seen enough of Mac Jones to know he's a good player, he's a solid quarterback, but he has a ceiling. We haven't seen what Bailey Zappi's ceiling is yet. He's just scratching the surface here, and like I said, he's looked really sharp so far. So if I'm the Patriots, what does it hurt to give this kid another start and, hell, see if he can keep it going? All right, guys, the last few weeks, I've been trying to incorporate the Twitter poll questions and put them here on the show because it's been a lot of fun. I love doing these, and I love getting some responses from you guys. This week, I had two poll questions that I wanted to address on the show here. The first one I put out, at PGF Podcast, by the way, if you want to follow along on Twitter, if you're not already, follow myself and the show, at PGF Podcast on Twitter. Love engaging with you guys and love having these poll questions where I can get some feedback from you guys. I asked you guys earlier this week, which New York team is better, Giants or Jets? 63% voted for the Giants, 38% voted for the Jets. The bottom line is these two New York teams are playing some great ball right now. They have really exceeded just about anybody's expectations the Giants are 5-1. and one, The Jets are 4-2. and two. They're both on three-game winning streaks right now. The Giants just knocked off the Ravens in a big comeback victory last week. They beat Green Bay the week before that in London. The Jets have three straight wins, including a blowout win of the Packers and a blowout win over the Miami Dolphins. These teams are looking really good. The future is finally starting to look bright in New York for these two franchises that both have been really down for a long time now. Exciting to see these teams playing at a high level right now. It's been a blast. The other poll question I had for you guys in college football, after the big win on Saturday, I asked, 
is Tennessee a national championship contender? As we know, they had that thrilling game versus Alabama, a back-and-forth battle where they knocked off the Crimson Tide for the first time in what felt like forever. 69% of you said, yes, Tennessee is indeed a national championship contender. 31% said, no, look, I don't want to rain on Tennessee's parade here. It was a great win. Great story so far this year in college football. Hendon Hooker, the quarterback for Tennessee, is the real deal. This kid is so fun to watch. Coach Josh Heupel has really turned this program around. He has done an outstanding job for the Volunteers. But this is a team that still has to get by Kentucky, who's sneaky good. And, of course, Georgia, the defending national champs, who, yeah, everyone talks about all the pieces they lost on defense. Well, they're only allowing nine points per game this season. They are dominant on that side of the ball, and the offense might actually be better this year than they were last year. On top of that, if you get by those two landmines, then you have to win an SEC title and get by some high, high high-level teams in a college football playoff scenario. Look, I don't think so. They're a good team. This is a good program. It's a team that's definitely on the rise. But I just don't think they're built, not yet at least, to be a national championship contender. But a great win for them and a great story nonetheless. All right, we are six weeks into the NFL season. Week seven coming up, of course. It got me thinking, looking at all the parity around the league. We don't really have any dominant teams. Yes, the Eagles are undefeated. We've got a few 5-1 and one teams as well. We've got some high-level teams. But there's a few teams sitting at that 3-3 three and three mark that a lot of us had circled as contenders going into the year. Got me thinking, is it time to hit the panic button for these three teams? I'm going to start with the Green Bay Packers. This is the team that has now lost back-to-back games to the Giants and the Jets. Just talked about it a moment ago. Last week, the Jets... That was a game that really wasn't even close. The offense just is not clicking for Green Bay right now. They've had eight turnovers in six games, which is really surprising because this is a team that in the last few years has done such a good job taking care of the football. And they also used to be one of the best red zone offenses in the entire NFL. And now all of a sudden they're very average in the red zone. They can't stop the run. The young wide receivers in Green Bay just have not improved as much as I expected by this point in the year. Week six, seven, eight was kind of when I thought we were going to see a jump from this offense and from those receivers. It just doesn't seem to be happening as quickly as I'm sure Packer fans would like. This offense just doesn't have a deep threat right now. And with Devontae Adams being gone, it's been a much bigger loss than even I anticipated. I thought the offense would take a step back, but I thought they still had enough talent there. And with Aaron Rodgers, the reigning back-to-back MVP, I thought that they'd figure it out by now and this offense would be clicking, but that has certainly not been the case. Is it time to hit the panic button in Green Bay? I'm going to say yes. I do not feel as good about this team as I did coming into the year. On top of that, you've got the Vikings, who are surprisingly 5-1. and one. The Packers look worse now than they did at the start of the year. And that's a problem as well. This is a team, that, like I said, we should have seen improvement by now. And it seems like things are getting worse in Green Bay, not better. So if I'm the Packers, I'm hitting that panic button. It's time to be nervous if you're a Green Bay fan. 
Next team on my list is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This is a team that they've lost three of their last four games. And they just lost to a bad Steelers team that was actually missing a lot of their key players. TJ Watt, Minka Fitzpatrick, several other key players were out for the Steelers. Normally you'd think that Tampa Bay would roll in a game like that, but they struggled in that game. They struggled to put up points and they lost to a Steelers team who really hasn't done anything this year at all. That's got to be a real concern. That that was a bad loss. It's one thing to lose to a good team, but losing to a team like Pittsburgh is really not acceptable if you're going to be considered a Super Bowl contender. When I look at this Bucks team, Brady is just under too much pressure right now. I think the biggest concern for them is the offensive line. They can't run the ball. They've struggled opening up holes for their running backs. They are getting their starting left tackle back, which I think should help the offensive line. I also think they need to get... Their rookies, Rashad White and tight end Cade Otten, more involved in this offense. I like what I've seen from those guys, but they're not getting enough playing time. I expect them to find some more ways to get them involved in the offense, start to get some more carries for the rookie, and start to get more targets for Cade Otten, the tight end, who's really flashed some talent. Now, here's the thing about the Bucks: The defense is still really, really good could be one of the best defensive units in the entire NFL. The other good news for the Bucs is the NFC South is still really, really bad. So when you combine those two things and you look at some pieces maybe coming back for the Bucs, plus I still feel like this offense has enough weapons, especially the wide receiver position. I think they're going to be able to figure this out, especially if they can get that running game going, take a little bit of pressure off of Brady in that passing attack. Is it time to hit the panic button in Tampa Bay? I'm going to say no. Am I concerned? Definitely. But I still think with that weak division, they're a front runner, which means a ticket to the playoffs and a team that I don't think has played its best football yet. All right, another 3-3 three and three team on this list is the Baltimore Ravens. The Ravens blew a 10-point lead last Sunday versus the New York Giants. Lamar Jackson had two big turnovers down the stretch that really cost the Ravens the game three times this year. They've lost after blowing a 10-point lead or more. Really shocking to see them not be able to hang on to leads. They've had a double-digit lead in all six games this year, yet are 3-3. Three and three. That's the first time in NFL history that a team has ever done that. Now, they're one of the best running teams in the entire league. I think that's going to continue, and I think it's going to continue to carry them. But situationally, this team still struggles in the red zone at times. They still struggle in critical moments, and that's a big reason why they've blown some of these leads because, quite frankly, they've just been bad when it matters the most. Now, the defense gives up a lot of yards, and that's probably the most concerning thing about this Ravens team. Very un-Baltimore-like to have a defense like this. I'm not sure it's going to necessarily get better. I think they're missing some pieces on that side of the ball that they need to address. But with the running game and Lamar Jackson and a great head coach, is it time to hit the panic button? I'm going to say no. You don't get double-digit leads in six straight games by accident. I think they're going to figure out a way to start holding on to some of these leads and winning some more of these games. This is a team that I think will turn it around. PGF Nation, you guys already know, I've been bullish on Baltimore all offseason, and just because they've had some trouble closing teams out, 
I'm not going to panic just yet. This division in the AFC North is not very good. I think they're going to be able to clean up their mistakes, and the defense is definitely concerning, but I still like Baltimore in that division to win it, which means I think they're still in good shape. All right, I brought it back a couple weeks ago. Loved bringing it back again this year. Once again, it's time for the college football week seven helmet sticker. This one was a no-brainer. Talked about Tennessee Volunteers getting that monster win over Alabama. Incredible game. It was the game of the week in college football. The helmet sticker goes to Tennessee wide receiver Jalen Hyatt. Six catches for 207 yards in five touchdowns this kid was absolutely lights out man and look they weren't doing this against some average college football team this was against number three Alabama this is against Nick Saban and that secondary that normally just doesn't get beat up like this I don't even remember seeing a wide receiver torch a Saban led Alabama secondary like this Maybe ever. I can't recall a time. Maybe there was, but I certainly don't remember ever seeing a time where one player dominated the secondary in Alabama like this. Hyatt was just incredible. Now, he's a slot wide receiver. He's only about 6'1", 180 pounds, but this kid consistently just pulled away from defenders. He had three 30-plus yard touchdowns, big-time explosive plays. In that back-and-forth game, he made some huge huge plays to not only keep Tennessee in it, but to put them out in front and win that huge game. The NFL week six game ball is going to go to Jets defensive lineman, Quinnen Williams. I love when I get an opportunity to give a game ball to a guy on the defensive side who had a dominant performance and Jets defensive lineman, Quinnen Williams Definitely fits the bill. This guy was a wrecking ball last Sunday versus the Green Bay Packers. Talked about that loss a little bit earlier. This guy was a huge reason why. Five tackles, two sacks, a forced fumble, and a blocked field goal. You want to talk about a monster day at the park. This guy was just unbelievable. Easily the most impactful player on the field. He was a monster. All right, guys. Well, my hot streak got put out like a cigarette butt last week. Man, not going to lie. This has been a brutal, brutal season for picking winners, but I'm going to keep them coming for you guys. I'm going to keep trying to pick winners for you guys. I'm getting roughed up, but it's time once again for the pick six. Look, with as cold as I've been this year, Maybe you just want to fade these picks, and if you did, I wouldn't hold it against you, but I'm still going to try my very best to put in the time and the work to give you guys the best picks that I can come up with. I'm going to start in college football. I'm going to take the Miami Hurricanes minus nine versus Duke. Now, the Canes had a bad three-game stretch, but they had a nice win over Virginia Tech last week. Quarterback Tyler Van Dyke really seemed to find his confidence again with over 350 yards passing and two touchdowns, one that was an absolute dime. I mean, my goodness, that might have been the throw of the week in college football. Now, Duke is giving up 141 yards per game on the ground. I think that's key in this matchup because running back Henry Parrish for the Miami Hurricanes is averaging 4.8 yards per carry. I think the Hurricanes are going to dominate up front, control this game, and cover versus the Blue Devils. 
Sticking with college football, I'm going to take UT Martin. That's right. University Tennessee Martin plus 37 and a half points versus the Tennessee Volunteers. Look, just talked about Tennessee. This team's awesome. And they're a huge, huge favorite in this game for a reason. But quite frankly, it didn't matter who was playing the Volunteers this week. I was going to take them because that was a big emotional win over an Alabama team. And anytime you get a big, big emotional win like that, quite frankly, the biggest win Tennessee has had in decades, you're looking at a big emotional letdown spot here. UT Martin is four and two. They're a solid team. I know they're nowhere near as talented as a team like the Volunteers, but this UT Martin team is going to be fired up. This is a big stage for these guys. It's not every day they get to play a team like this. They're going to give the Volunteers everything they've got. And 37 and a half points is a lot of points. Plus, you have to add in that this is a trap game because Kentucky is on the schedule the following week. This could be a big, big letdown spot. Do I expect the Volunteers to win? Of course. But covering 37 and a half points? I don't think so. All right, switching to the NFL, I'm going to take the Atlanta Falcons. That's right. Three weeks in a row now. I'm going to take the Atlanta Falcons plus six and a half versus the Bengals. Cincy has a bit of a Super Bowl hangover going on. This is something that I expected. I told you guys, I expected this team to come back down to earth. That's exactly what they've done. They're good. They're a good team. Don't get me wrong, but they're not great. And six and a half points is just way too many points against a Falcons team that has been really solid. The Bengals give up 121 yards per game on the ground, and Atlanta is one of the best rushing teams in the entire NFL. That's a key matchup to watch for in this game. The Falcons have covered every single week. Now, you could argue that that might be the time to get off this team, but I like this matchup. Six and a half points is good value here for a team that's competitive every single week in Atlanta. So I'm taking the six and a half. Next game, I'm going to take the New York Jets plus two versus the Broncos. Look, the Broncos defense is one of the best in the entire NFL. The problem is their quarterback is one of the worst in the entire NFL. Russell Wilson just continues to struggle. This guy has been absolutely terrible. The offense is absolutely terrible. Now, Zach Wilson. He's got his own question marks, and he's going to make some mistakes too. But right now, I can't believe I'm saying this, I'd rather have Zach Wilson than Russell Wilson. How the Broncos are even favored versus anybody at this point is shocking. How could I not take the points here? The Broncos have been a complete train wreck. The Jets have weapons. They have playmakers. I love what they're doing with their running game. Jets getting points? It seems crazy. It seems like that line should be the exact opposite. I don't know how the Jets aren't favored, so give me the points, New York. All right, next, I got the 49ers plus three versus the Chiefs. Look, the 49ers are better than their record. This is still a team that I feel pretty bullish about. One of the best rosters in the entire league. I don't think that's changed. Getting points at home versus really just about anyone is an automatic bet for me when it comes to the 49ers, especially after a loss, because this is a team that's got all the motivation in the world to get home and get things right and get things going again. Are the Chiefs one of the best teams in the league? No doubt about it. But each week in the NFL, it's about matchups. And I think the 49ers can win up front 
versus the Chiefs. I also think that they're going to be able to run the ball in the Chiefs to control the clock, control the game. And on the other side, I think their D-line in that front seven can put pressure on Mahomes and slow down that offensive attack for the Kansas City Chiefs. Really solid team like the Niners getting points at home, especially three, good value. I'm going to take the 49ers. Last pick on the pick six, I'm going to take the Houston Texans plus seven versus the Raiders. Now, Houston is a team that has really been a lot more competitive than I think people realize. They've had some close losses. They had a tie, and they won last week versus the Jaguars. The Raiders are the more talented team. They've got the more talented roster for sure, but they're 1-4 and and maybe the most disappointing team in the entire NFL. You can tell after that loss last week, it really feels like this thing has come off the rails in Vegas. You can tell the frustration hit a boiling point last week and when Devontae Adams shoved that photographer. This team knows that they have little to no chance of doing anything this year. It feels like a total mess in Vegas while Houston is just playing hard week in and week out. Like I said, are they a good team? No, but neither are the Raiders. So why are they favored by seven points? Quite frankly, I don't think the Raiders should be favored by seven versus anyone. So give me the seven points, too much value to ignore. Pint Glass Football Podcast is presented by Better Edge. Bringing the edge back to the betters with no fee sports betting. At betteredge.com, you, not the books, set the price of betting lines so you can make bank. Better Edge is available in 45 states for real money sports betting. Play the game without getting played at betteredge.com. Excited to be joined by Derek Peterson, who covered Nebraska football in the Big Ten for Hale Varsity and is now a writer and editor for SaturdayOutWest.com, covering Pac-12 football. Derek, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, excited to dive in here, talk some Pac-12 football with you. You guys do such a great job at Saturday Out West. If you guys haven't checked it out, go look at this website because it's absolutely awesome. I want to start with some big picture stuff here, Derek. The Pac-12, it might be deeper than it's been in years, but with USC losing, they could be on the outside looking in once again for a college football playoff berth. This league tends to cannibalize itself most years, which one could argue shows how deep the league actually is, but often the national narrative is, well, they have no great team. Losing USC and UCLA makes respect even harder to earn going forward. What can Commissioner George Klyovkov do to save this conference, or do you think that it's inevitable that teams like Oregon, Washington, and possibly others end up leaving for the Big Ten? I mean, if you're talking about what what's needed to sort of address like the first concern that you laid out, right, not, like not having an, a truly elite team, Without USC, I mean, you you really have to keep Oregon in the boat. And one of the things that like I wrote um, when all of this expansion um, conference realignment stuff was sort of breaking, it, why not just float unequal revenue distributions for Oregon and Washington to try to keep those two teams happy? Because there was a bunch of reporting over the the summer that USC was not thrilled with getting, you know, the same kind of media rights revenue share as like say Colorado. Kliakov just took over he took over in a, a bad time for the league and he had a, just a really small window to try to keep USC happy and sort of reverse some of the decisions and the mistakes that had been made by Larry Scott previously. 
it's imperative that Oregon and Washington remain. And, you know, some of the reporting that has that has trickled out since the season got rolling, it, it seems more likely than not that the Pac-12 will survive and that, you know, the threat of the Big 12 sort of picking off Pac-12 teams is not is not as big as Brett Yormark, who's the Big 12 commissioner, would, would have you believe. If you sort of read the tea leaves around some of the things that Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Warren is saying, um, it sounds like they are in, in a little bit more of wait and see mode than some folks would probably have you believe. The Big Ten wants Notre Dame. The Big Ten wants that's that's priority number one for the Big Ten, and the Big Ten is willing to wait for Notre Dame, um, and that gives Klyavkov a little bit of time. So, you know, I think Dan Lanning at Oregon becomes like the most important man in the room. I really like Dan Lanning. I really like what I've seen. I think if Lanning gets Oregon sort of operating at that level that Mario Cristobal couldn't really bump up to, the Pac-12 might be okay. And getting an expanded college football playoff will help. But I think, like you, like you said in the beginning, long-winded answer to answer your question, like you said in the beginning, the, the Pac-12 needs that really like truly elite team. Um, they need the team that you know the ACC has in Clemson, that the Big Ten has in Ohio State, that is, while the rest of the league sort of cannibalizes itself, because it happens in the Big Ten too, but you have Ohio State operating just at a tier above everybody else, um, if you can get that kind of team for Oregon in the in the Pac-12, I think you're going to be okay. Like they're not going to approach revenue levels that the Big Ten gets or the SEC gets, right? Like we're talking about the the clear third fiddle in the pecking order. Um, but you just want to make sure that you can uh, that you can you can outlast the Big Twelve and you know sort of be that that third attractive conference when when things stop. And so in, in that way, I think. Dan Lanning is 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 super 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 important, not just for the Oregon Ducks but for the Pac-12 in general. If he is the coach that you know, it kind of looks like he is that sort of next new age, really really strong head coach that gets his team to improve week after week and absolutely crushes it on the recruiting trail, and that program can be elite. I think the Pac-12 will be in a better situation than it was, you know, say July, early August. Yeah, those are all great points. And I know there's a ton to unpack there. And like you said, George Klyovkov was kind of put in an impossible situation. It's really made things difficult going forward. I think the media rights deal is going to be so huge. And I think it's going to tell us a lot about how stable this conference actually is. There's a lot of reports about, like you said, the revenue sharing, how that's going to be divided. There's been a lot of reports about whether or not Oregon, Washington, possibly Stanford and Cal could have opt-out clauses in the contract as well. When all that stuff kind of gets shaken out, I think we'll have a lot clearer picture on where these programs sit and how they feel about going forward in the conference. But I like your point about Dan Lanning in that program because I think you're right. They need to become a Clemson and Ohio State, so to speak, to really keep this conference relevant and they just haven't had that. And it's really unfortunate, like you said, because it felt like before this conference realignment, USC finally gets the right coach. For so long, they went through coaches after the Pete Carroll era and just never really got back to the USC that most people expect them to be. Now it looks like they're about to become that program again, right as they see the exit. So a devastating blow for the conference, but interesting to see if Oregon can kind of prop itself up to become that power team in the conference, like you mentioned. 
Now, speaking of big-time teams in this conference, we saw a big-time matchup last Saturday, USC, Utah, top 25 matchup. It really lived up to the hype. Utah pulls off a close win at home, back-and-forth game between two great teams. But unfortunately, it was somewhat overshadowed by some horrible officiating that has really dominated the headlines after this game. Officials that made calls that, quite frankly, might have cost USC this game. One in particular was a brutal roughing the passer call when USC was up 14. It negated an interception, and USC was threatening to pull away at that point. The very next play, Utah scores a touchdown. You just can't have those type of blunders in big games like this. I thought it was a really big black eye for the the game and for the league. What were your thoughts on this game and the officiating in general? Yeah, I mean, on, on the officiating point, I think we're at a, a, you know, not to get like super negative because I thought the game was fantastic and it was it was it, it lived up to all of my um, hopes and expectations. I had this game circled since like January, <laughs> since like when Lincoln Riley was like, OK, he's at USC. But I, I like we're we're at a very like crucial point in college, not just in the Pac-12, but in college football with officiating. John Canzano earlier, he had a column. I want to say it was fall camp, maybe towards the start of the season, where w- one of the points was like officiating in general is just at a really, really low point right now. And you can point to, you know, there's not really a feeder system for officials up into major college football and lower levels of football be it at high school, sort of the prep level, they have a shortage of officials. And I would say that in college football, we have a shortage of quality officials because there are insane things happening every single weekend throughout the country. It wasn't a Pac-12 crew, but it was a Pac-12 game. Think about the Cal-Notre Dame game where Cal's called for offsides on that field goal attempt. And we were still talking about it you know, weeks after the fact because like the ACC crew, the, the line judge that did it, worked another Notre Dame game after the fact, even after reporting came out that he was going to get suspended by the ACC for a couple of games or for a game. He's on a Notre Dame game the very next week. And I think part of it is we just don't have the depth of quality officials. That's a real problem. Um, but we, we need to find a fix because you're right. It, it is, you know, it's negatively impacting the product. Each weekend, because like with this game in particular, it's 43-42, Utah beats USC. It was everything we hoped for from a game that we had been looking forward to all season. Cameron Rising has a two-point conversion to win Utah the game. It, it literally, it, Lincoln Riley said after the game that they didn't lose because of the officiating, and I agree with him. There are a collection of plays throughout that you can point to and say USC was like one, they were literally one stop short. They were one stop short. And it was, you know, Kyle Whittingham saying, we haven't been able to stop these guys. They haven't been able to stop us. I'm going to go for two. I'm going to roll the dice. I'm going to live with the results. It was a big time decision from a really good coach in a big time moment in a huge game. And, you know, you're you're right. that It was a little overshadowed by the officiating. And that makes me sad um, because I thought this was a real, officiating aside, I thought this was a real showcase kind of game for the Pac-12 because, you know, like we just get done talking about the Pac-12 not really having an elite team in recent years. And now, you know, you've got UCLA at six and zero. I don't know if they're elite. We're certainly going to find out. They play Oregon this weekend. You've got USC who I, I think maybe is as, as close a team offensively um, as you'll get to an elite unit. You've got Utah who Utah also has its flaws, but Utah has, I think Utah is really bumping up against, you know, how good a team it can be consistently. 
in this league. And, and, you know, I, I just thought, I thought it was an, an incredible game. Um, it was two teams that were sort of operating offensively at the peak of their powers. Cameron Rising is awesome. I wrote in the in the preseason and sort of like way back, I think March was when I wrote about it, that like he could be a dark horse kind of Heisman guy. Well, this was just all Cam Rising in this game. This was just rising brilliance. Cam Rising sort of showed what is, I think, the from a positive standpoint, the, the best storyline in the conference this year, and that's that this league is littered with really, really, really good quarterback play in this league. You've got Cam Rising, you've got DTR, you've got Bo Nix, who's having a resurgent season in Oregon's offense. You've got Caleb Williams, and then you've got some guys like Cameron Ward um, at Washington State, like Jaden Delora at Arizona, who, you know, they're, they're going to make mistakes and their teams aren't perfect, but they're very entertaining to watch. Um, and I think, you know, you talk about depth, quality depth in the league, and the league being stronger top to bottom this year than it has been in recent years. It's because of the quarterback play. So that's big picture. I thought this Utah USC game was was phenomenal. And one thing our our columnist wrote after the game was that Utah beating USC pretty much knocks the Pac-12 out of the college football playoff discussion. I would disagree with that. I think they're still going to have a say at the end of the year. Maybe it's not Utah because a two-loss team has never made it into the college football playoff. But I don't think a one-point loss to Utah if USC runs the table keeps it out of the playoff. And I don't think a 49 to three loss to Georgia, as crazy as that seems, would keep Oregon out of the playoff if it runs the table. And I also don't think a one loss UCLA team, depending on who the loss comes to, would be left out of the college football playoff. So that's that's certainly something that's going to be interesting down the stretch. Yeah, you hit it on the head perfectly. And this game did live up to the hype and the officiating becoming the story was really unfortunate. And I I highlighted it because, like I said, it really kind of overshadowed what was just an awesome national spotlight game for the conference. I want to stick with that game for a second here with a follow up. Did USC's defense get exposed in this game? Did their defense get exposed? I don't think it got exposed because I think we saw what USC's defense is and has been like USC's deep defense has been able to make plays. Joel Klatt has been saying this for a couple weeks. USC has been the best team at hiding and working around its fatal flaw, which is its run defense. And they entered this game against Utah, leading the country in sacks. They had 24 sacks in their first six games. They don't sack Cam Rising a single time. They entered this game with 12 interceptions in six games, also leading the country. They didn't pick off Cam Rising. They got one that was wiped away by the roughing the passer penalty, but it doesn't doesn't go down in the in the box score, so they don't get an interception. They have been very very good at playing opportunistic, aggressive defensive football when they have a lead. And USC jumps out to a fourteen nothing lead. Everybody on the internet is going like, "Oh my God, they're going to run away with this." Utah's defense looks awful. They're getting shredded. USC is going to turn this into a laugh or a snooze fest. And Utah gets that one touchdown from Makai Bernard to make it a seven-point game, and it was kind of just like, a, okay, relax. Utah's going to be able to chip away at this. USC's not really going to be able to stop them either. Utah put up 562 yards of offense. When the defense hasn't had that insurance that they can play aggressive, it has not been great defensively. I don't necessarily think USC's defense got exposed. I think this is what they have been all season long. Now, I want to shift gears here because you talked about earlier in the podcast here a bunch of transfer quarterbacks and how they've injected life into the Pac-12 this year. It's a big part of the reason why earlier I mentioned the depth of this conference, but which team do you think has been the most surprising so far this season? Three weeks ago, I would have said Oregon State, 
and then Chance Nolan forgot what color jersey his receivers were wearing. Um, and they had that really bad two-week stretch against – maybe this would have been four weeks ago. They had that really bad two-week stretch against USC and Utah where they threw eight interceptions in two games. They've rebounded really nicely, though. So maybe I will go with Oregon State. They're 5-2. and two. They're sitting at 5-2. and two. They start off 3-0. and oh. They beat Boise State in the opener. They beat Fresno State on the road with a, a really clutch um, sort of walk-off touchdown from Jack Coletto. And then they lose to USC 17-14 at home a very very winnable game Caleb Williams throws a touchdown pass to Jordan Addison with like a minute and some change on the clock um and Oregon State can't can't get the response and they were able to bottle up USC's offense in in ways that we haven't really seen anybody else do this season and then they get just absolutely shredded by Utah that game was sort of over before it started Chance Nolan throws two interceptions in his first seven passes fast forward a week they're trailing Stanford and with 13 seconds left in the game, they're down 27-22, and they got their backup quarterback in the game. Chance Nolan was not able to go. And Treshawn Harrison gets a 56-yard touchdown, sort of like a uh, like a Stephon Diggs, like jump over the, the corner, catch it, run away from the guy, Minneapolis miracle kind of play. They beat Stanford 28-27, and they follow that up this weekend with a 24-10 win over a really good Washington State team. I'm writing my my Pac-12 power rankings during the Stanford game. I'm looking at the the score, and I'm I've dropped Oregon State tentatively, like as I'm writing it, to 11th in my Pac-12 power rankings. And like a couple of weeks earlier, they were third. And I'm like, this this season is potentially like in the toilet. Like this is this is going in a bad direction. And here they are, five and two. They get Colorado this week. Then they get a bye, and they get to play Washington, who would who would probably be my other pick for the most surprising team. California and Arizona State before Oregon to close out the season. Like, could this team reach eight wins? Could they reach nine wins? I think it's possible. And I think it's possible because this is an insanely well-coached football team. I think on the like the list of the most underappreciated head coaches in college football, Jonathan Smith has to be up there. I'm kind of surprised that more of these like big name jobs, like you don't hear more Jonathan Smith buzz. Like anytime a coach gets fired, last year and a half a coach has been fired everybody's like Dave Aranda at Baylor Mel Tucker at Michigan State Luke Fickle at Cincinnati where's the Jonathan Smith talk this is a a fantastic head coach and I think they have they have restabilized themselves and so in that way I think that they would have to be the most surprising team this season because you think about it this Oregon State team you know if you haven't been paying attention to Pac-12 football for the last three four years you would know Oregon State as a doormat football program like you would think of like each Power Five program's doormat, you would think of Rutgers in the Big Ten. You'd think of Kansas in the the Big Twelve. Of course, not this year. Um, and you'd think of Oregon State in the Pac twelve. And that's just not what this program is anymore. What they have shown, sort of all throughout this season, has been surprising in a very good way. Yeah, that's a great pick, and you're definitely right. Jonathan Smith, the job he's done at Oregon State. I watched that USC game versus Oregon State in Corvallis, and they had USC on the ropes. And that was, you know, if it wasn't for Caleb Williams and and USC making some big plays down the stretch, they probably should have won that game. And it just shows how far this program's come. Like you said, this was not a very good program at all for several years. And the job that Jonathan Smith has done there is outstanding. Building that program into a winner and a competitive team a week in and week out. I like what you said about job openings and him not getting mentioned because I haven't heard a whisper 
about any of these big programs looking at him, and I think they should be. The only thing I could think of is that he's a Oregon State alum, and maybe that's a dream spot for him. Maybe he's coaching his dream spot and and isn't taking calls. That that's about the only thing I could think of because you're right. He is an outstanding coach and he's done it a great job there in Corvallis. I like what you, you also mentioned Washington, a team that a lot of people didn't have big expectations for. Michael Penix comes over from Indiana, injects some life into that offense, and I like what they've done there. They've been really fun to watch. So great mm-hmm. answers there on some Pac-12 programs that have really surprised. Now, the Pac-12 has a national stage game in week eight, a top 10 matchup, undefeated number nine UCLA takes on number 10 Oregon in Eugene. You kind of briefly touched on this game, but I want to dive into it here. ESPN College Game Day is going to be there. It should be a great atmosphere. Auburn quarterback transfer Bo Nix has been really good for the Ducks. Dorian Thompson Robinson has been electric for the Bruins. What matchups are key to watch for in this game, and how do you see this one playing out? It's uh, again, I'm going to be boring. It's the offensive line. It's the battle at the line of scrimmage. UCLA, they got 15 sacks on the season. Like just the the sheer sack production doesn't really blow you away. Like people that read my UCLA stuff probably got sick and tired of hearing me or was uh, reading me talk about havoc rate and havoc production. You that was that was UCLA's like number one thing that needed to get changed this offseason like if like that needed to be priority number one for chip kelly on the defensive side of the ball figure out a way to generate more havoc particularly in the front seven they bring in gabriel and grace and murphy uh twins from north texas through the transfer portal and they have been as impactful a pair of transfers as i think you'll find in college football they've been very very good and you know some of it is is it's not necessarily production that's going to show up in the box score but they impact the game. And then also add a guy like, I'm going to butcher his name, Leatu Latu, um, who was medically retired for two years with a neck injury. Comes to UCLA by way of Washington, has six and a half sacks through his first six games with UCLA. And before UCLA went into its bye week, he ranked second nationally in sacks. Their ability to win at the line of scrimmage on defense is the biggest change for them in this 6-0 start. They have been so much better at being able to generate havoc without blitzing the farm. And going against Oregon, which has arguably one of the best offensive lines in all of college football, they've given up one sack in six games. They don't really let you get to Bo Nix, which is part of the reason why Bo Nix has been so excellent. They run the ball exceptionally well because their offensive line is winning at the point of attack more often than not. They just don't get stuffed in the backfield. They have two tailbacks who are among the top 10 in the Pac-12 in rushing efficiency. And then Bo Nix himself is averaging eight yards a carry. This is going to be a game that is won at the line of scrimmage. It's going to be which which side wins out. Can UCLA continue to affect the quarterback, continue to generate havoc plays and get into, in this case, Oregon's backfield? and sort of change the way Oregon operates its offense or can Oregon state win or can Oregon state, excuse me, can Oregon that God, they're going to be mad if they're listening to this. Can Oregon <laughs> win at the line of scrimmage and sort of prevent those edge rushers, those outside linebackers from changing the game. That's going to be the the big time matchup. I think, you know, you look at UCLA's 
top receiver, Jake Bobo. I think Oregon has a, a cornerback who's really, really well suited to try to slow him down and, and hang with him throughout the game. Christian Gonzalez is one of the most physical corners that you'll find. He's a big guy. I think he'll be able to hang with with Jake Bobo. Dorian Thompson Robinson, I, you know, like, you know, this is going to be one of those games where like the stars get theirs, right? Like this is going to be what, like Dorian Thompson Robinson is good. Zach Charbonnet is good. Bonix is good. The stars are going to have like star caliber moments. They're going to make plays, but it's going to come down to, I think it's going to come down to which of those, that UCLA defensive front seven or the Oregon offensive line, that's going to determine, I think that's going to determine who comes away with this win. It's a great breakdown by you, and it's not a boring take at all. PGF Nation, the listeners out there, they probably already know what I'm going to say because I say it on repeat on the show. The game is always going to be won or lost in the trenches, and a lot gets made of the playmakers, the receivers, the running backs, the quarterbacks, but guys like me and you and the listeners out there, they know that that's really where the game is won and lost, and that is a great answer because it's really – going to determine a lot in the outcome for this one. I couldn't agree with you more. Oregon's O-line has been outstanding. They have been so good, and they're deep at running back. Like you mentioned, they've got some guys that can really run the ball. Bo Nix, we've talked about how efficient he's been, how good he's played in the Pac-12 this year. He's been outstanding. They've really found a way to utilize both his arm and legs. And Chip, the former Oregon coach here at UCLA, has finally got something kind of going here at UCLA really building a team that is physical, a big physical football team. Mm -hmm. You know, Chip nationally was always known for the blur offense, the offense that really made him famous at Oregon. But I think it overshadows just what kind of team he wants to build. And that's a punch you in the mouth, physical football team, a team that's going to run down your throat. And that's what he's built here at UCLA. They're a tough physical team. And this is going to be a tough physical fun game to watch. Because like you said, there's some, some big time playmakers on both sides of the ball for both these teams. I absolutely cannot wait for this one. I think it's the game of the week in college football and it's going to be a lot of fun and it has been a lot of fun to be joined once again by Derek Peterson who covers Pac-12 football for SaturdayOutWest.com. Be sure to check out his work there and Derek thanks again for coming on the show. Hey it was awesome I love this conversation thank you for having me. That is going to do it for today's episode presented by Better Edge. Hope you enjoyed it, PGF Nation. Hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on new episodes, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the Pint Glass Football Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at PGF Podcast.